A lot of people say in Israel, it's still October 7th. And it became a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. I've seen it with a lot of visitors that come to visit Israel. To them, Simchas Torah was three or four months ago. For us, it's yesterday, or even still today. Hi there, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy. Today, we have the honor of speaking with a woman from Be'er Sheva, who is literally on the front lines of this war in Israel, helping in every way imaginable. Our conversation today is raw, it's heavy, at times slightly graphic, but it's also really empowering. Broria shares how she is helping and really practical ways that we can participate in helping and supporting and being there for our Jewish family living in Israel at this time. I am so grateful to have you here. So grateful to you for making time during this time when you're doing so much for the Jewish people. Thank you for lending us your voice for this hour to share what you've seen, what you're seeing, and how you're coping, staying strong, hoping through all of this. Can you begin by introducing yourself and telling us? Thank you for having me. Tell us your name and tell us a little bit about who you are. We've had you on the podcast before, but I kind of feel like your job definition may have changed a little bit since then. So give us the updated Broria. Okay. I mean, I still have the same. I'm still working on the same thing. We're still working on building a new yeshiva in Israel. Just a lot of new things have come into play. Since Simchas Tara, I just, I mean, it's really the Rebbe's philosophy that you want to be a helper when there is a big problem, when there's a darkness to see what you can do to help. And that's what I've been trying to do since then. And I think if you would say all of us, all I think all the Jewish people and everybody in Israel, we've all, something inside of us changed since Simchas Tara. So I don't know, I'm still the same me, but there's something different and I haven't yet put my finger on what it is. Just a big, huge thing in our lives that changed a lot that needs to be processed. Can you describe like the texture of it? On Simchas Torah itself, when we woke up in the morning, we live in Beersheba. So Beersheba is not front line, but it's like, we call it medium line. As in, we do get a lot of rockets. We have a bit less time than like the Tel Aviv, Yerushalayim area. One minute versus 90 seconds or two minutes. But we're not like in the worst area. So Simchas Torah morning, we woke up in a shock because we weren't expecting sirens. And went to our bomb shelter and pretty soon realized that the amount of rockets falling, the amount of nonstop it was for hours on end, something was different. But we didn't feel the need to turn on our phones. In an emergency situation, you're allowed to turn on your phone, but we didn't feel like we were in our bomb shelter. We felt safe and fine. At one point, our house filled with smoke because a rocket had fallen not far from our house. But when there was a break in between the rockets, 
which about an hour or so, we actually, my husband and kids and I, we did hakafas us around our living room table. My kids each went and chose the biggest safer that they could find. They chose like Lakote Tara and Tara R because it said the word Tara on it. And it was like a big safer. And we took turns reading the Ataharaisas and doing a cafes and dancing around the table and trying our best to do some sort of Simchas Tara between the nonstop rockets in all of our cluelessness of what was going on. Some hakafas we started at the table and ended up in the bomb shelter doing back and forth. And it was a while until like we started noticing that there were so many ambulances driving by the house and it couldn't have just been at first we thought you know there's a fire behind our house so there's fire trucks going to put it out and then after a while we realized that there was like at least five ambulances at a time non-stop driving down the main road near our house oh my goodness so we went outside to try to figure out what was happening and saw a neighbor pacing back and forth in the street and my husband asked him like what's going on and he said to him you don't want to know what you're going to see on your phone when you turn it on after Shabbat, go inside and lock your door. He gave a few hints. He said, there's terrorists, they're in the Gaza envelope, Kibbutzim. And my heart dropped, like a pit in my stomach. I wanted to throw up. I went inside with the kids and said, we need to say to him. And there was this sudden, sharp, like moments ago, we had been dancing around the table, you know, trying to do some cluster as best as we can. Usually our attitude is when there's rockets, is like we make fun of it, you know, make light out of running for our lives. But all of a sudden it was my friends that live in these kibbutzim or the people that I've met over the years that live in these kibbutzim. Are they okay? Are they alive? Are they in those ambulances that have been whizzing by my house? <sighs> and in that moment, everything changed. It was, we used to always make fun in the bomb shelter, dance, joke about it, take bomb shelter selfies. And all of a sudden it was like, the bomb shelter is where my friend held her door handle for 12 hours straight so that the terrorists wouldn't break in and take her. Or where another friend's child was killed. Oh. I think part of the reason why we're all just trying to help as much as we can at this point is because we're not at a place of processing it yet. At least not here in Israel. It's all still, it's still going on. A lot of people say, in Israel, it's still October 7th. And it became a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. I've seen it with a lot of visitors that come to visit Israel. To them, Simchas Torah was three or four months ago. For us, it's yesterday, or even still today. Yeah. The soldiers that we see that are fighting it, and you can see it in people's eyes. You can see the trauma still flashing in front of their eyes, in front of the soldiers, in front of the survivors. And the fact that we still have the occasional siren, we still hear... The Beersheba, we live right next to one of the main Air Force bases. So we hear the warplanes taking off and flying over our house to Gaza all the time. Every day we hold our breath to see which names are going to be announced in the morning to see if it's somebody that we know. I don't know what it is yet that changed. I don't know if I could put my finger on it, but I look back at four months ago and it's just an entirely different, entirely different world. Oh. I think you said it so well that you're still in it. So mm -hmm. it's impossible to define it or describe it when you're still in that moment where everything is still changing and where there's still a lot of loss and a lot of, I don't know if you're experiencing fear per se, but there's still a lot of terrorist activity happening right near you. Tell us about your day today. I know today was an intense day for you and I'd love if you could share what it was with us. By the way, today is also part of this, what I've been talking about, we're still processing, as in there are so many 
stories because we're talking about 1,400 people who were killed plus hundreds more kidnapped. And to just get through each story and every day we're learning about another one. So it's just still ongoing just to process that the huge amount. Several years ago, my husband, I think for the past 10 years, since we moved, almost 10 years, since we moved to Beersheba, my husband goes every Friday. There are two tables in the main mall in Beersheba where all the different Chabanikim and Shluchim in the city take turns doing with Saim, helping people who come to the mall put on tefillin or giving out Shabbat candles. And my husband's been doing it almost every week for almost 10 years. Wow. And he likes to, you know, not just put tefillin on people, but converse with them and make friends and schmooze for a while with each person. So about five years ago, somebody came by the table and he started talking with him. And at first the guy was not interested in at all in putting on tefillin. And then, I don't know, somehow my husband talked him into it, put it on. And then they, what do you do? They found out they both work in digital marketing and they're like, hey, we should, you know, do business together. They exchanged phone numbers and over the years just kept in touch, kept messaging each other back and forth. And he kept telling my husband, you know, you have to come bring your family to visit my kibbutz. I live in the most beautiful kibbutz in the world. It's the most beautiful place. You need to come. You need to come meet my children. And I really wish that we had come to visit when he said to come to visit before a week ago. He said, you know, come visit now. He's from Kibbutz Bayri, oh. and he wants to share his story. He said he hasn't so much shared it until now, but he told us that when his daughter was a hostage, his daughter's 13, when she was a hostage, him and his daughter's mother would go every day to the hostage square to campaign for them. And they met so many people there, and he said everybody cared. Everyone wanted to know how she's doing. And she became everybody's daughter, all the Jewish people, all of the Israelis, everybody cared about her. And he feels like he needs to share the story now with everybody because everybody cared about her. And he wants to update everyone what happened and how she's doing. So we met him today at Kibbutz Berry. Today, there was a Hachnasat Sefer Torah for a new Torah was written in memory of one of the people who saved the lives of hundreds of people from Kibbutz Berry. So in the morning of Simchas Tara, there was a man named Elchanan Kalmanson from Otniel, which is in Yeren Shamran. So for context, Beiri is on the Gaza border, and it's a far-left kibbutz. Amazing people, peace activists. The ones that would be on the also in the protests against this current government, against the government reform. Otniel is also amazing people, far right, the ones who voted in the current government that the people in Berry were against. So literally minutes before Simchas Torah, these two communities were supposedly at the opposite spectrum, political spectrum, supposedly supposed to hate each other. But as soon as Ochanan heard what was happening on Simchas Torah, he got in his car and called up his brother Menachem, and they drove together directly to Kibbutz Berry. Wow. And when they got there, they got into a military jeep. So Al-Khanan had some kind of job in the Mossad. Nobody knows what it was, but he worked in the Mossad. So he knew what he was doing. The army was there, but they were mostly just trying to fight off and prevent more terrorists getting in because so many terrorists were in the kibbutz. So Menachem and Al-Khanan and later their nephew joined in too, just went in this military jeep from door to door searching for people that were alive drive them out of the kibbutz. 
So sometimes they came across homes where it was too late. Sometimes they rescued children who had just seen their parents be killed or kidnapped or parents who had just seen their kids be killed or kidnapped. God. Elhanan was very specific about, even though they were in a rush, he wanted people to leave with dignity. So, you know, a kid was running into his Jeep. He noticed that he dropped his glasses. He picked up his glasses for him, made sure the woman took time to take some clothes out of their drawers before running into the Jeep, all the while standing guard with his gun to make sure no terrorists came running in on them. So Menachem and Elhanan, for 24 hours more, were nonstop literally didn't stop to eat, didn't stop to drink, nothing, just rescuing people as much as they could, as fast as they could, until the next morning, Elhanan was finally like, okay, we need to take a break, we need to rest and eat so we could continue. But they decided to go to one last house. And in that one last house, Elhanan was killed. And his brother was injured, and they were evacuated. So today, there was a Hachanasa Sefer Torah, where they dedicated a new Torah in memory of Elhanan. And it was really very strange, beautiful, but emotionally just strange because we just, and I'll tell you about it, but we had just walked through the kibbutz with Ilya, who I just told you about that Mendy had met in the mall, my husband had met in the mall. And now we were at this celebration of a Torah. And it was a mix of people from Kibbutz Beri and people from Otniel, the family of Achanan and Menachem. So that's where we were today, but I'll backtrack into Ilya's story. So Ilya is the friend from Beri who I told you about. Right. Ilya, he walked us through his house, which is completely burnt down, but like the frames still stand and the bomb shelter is still locked shut. He had been home with his... 16-year-old son and his 13-year-old daughter. And the terrorist, he showed us how like they had left all his valuables perfectly in place. He had his, his, his wallet, his really expensive Apple computer. They were not interested in stealing. They came to kill. He was hiding in his bomb shelter, holding the door handle while his two kids hid under the bunk bed. He said for 45 minutes, it was a battle of the door handle, of him just holding the door handle as tight as he can, while the terrorists were trying everything to open it. And everywhere they tried opening the hinges, they couldn't open the hinges, they tried banging on the door handle. After 45 minutes, they actually broke off the door handle, and then they couldn't open the door. They even went and came back with some kind of electrical device to try to open the door from what had been left after the door handle came off. They were like that determined for, by this time, well over an hour, just trying to get that door open. When they finally realized they couldn't, so now there was a little hole from where the door, ha- door handle had been. They threw a grenade in, which injured his son in his shoulder. Oh. Then they lit the house on fire. And the smoke started coming in through the door handle, and they didn't know what to do about it. They started to suffocate. His son passed out. Between He had been injured by the grenade on his shoulder and from the smoke. And then his daughter, Gali, gasping for air, opened the window to the bomb shelter. And at that moment, they started shooting in through the window. And she just jumped out and ran. And he didn't see where she ran to. She ran to one friend's house and then apparently went to another friend's house. And at some point, she was kidnapped. And now Ilya had a choice. Does he stay in? the bomb shelter, and also suffocate? 
but at least stay with his son, who he couldn't lift out through the window? Or does he run? And he decided, you know, has to go live for his family. So he jumped out of the window and ran. He was only wearing his underwear, nothing but his underwear, because he had been woken up to this. First, he hid in a bush for about an hour. And then he moved to another bush where he dug a hole in the ground in the mud and lay in that hole in the ground. And he walked us through this today, showing us step by step where he had been holding the door handle, the window he had climbed out of, and the direction his daughter had run in where she was kidnapped, and then where he was hiding in the bush. And the hole he had dug is still there. He's hiding in the hole, watching the terrorist walk by and set fire to the neighborhood next to him. At one point, he saw a terrorist look in his direction and burst out laughing. And he assumed the terrorist was laughing because he found him. I thought, okay, it's over. He's going to come take him. And then he realized the terrorist was talking on the phone to someone and laughing out of glee for what they were doing. He hadn't seen him. He was just having fun. After three hours hiding in the pit, covered in mud, Menachem Kalmanson and Elkanan came and found him. I mean, he heard Hebrew with a proper accent. The terrorists had been trying to convince people that they were Israeli, so they were also talking Hebrew. But he heard them and he understood that this was an Israeli accent. And he jumped out of the pit and like started waving at them. And at first, they pointed guns at him because they didn't know, is he a terrorist or not? There was a lot of confusion. Of course. And he started talking in Hebrew and eventually convinced them, and they told him to get into their Jeep. They asked him, he was one of the first, if not the first, I think, that they rescued. So he, they asked him how to find their way around. They had printed out a map, or they had on their phones a map of the kibbutz that they found, that they were using to find their way around. They asked him which way to go next, and then they brought him to the outside of the kibbutz where, still in his underwear, he was then brought to Netivot and from Netivot to Eilat. And he said he was in such a daze, in such shock, that he literally just, I mean, he was evacuated with absolutely nothing. He didn't know what happened to his kids. He didn't know if they were alive, where were they, nothing. He was literally, he just in shock in his underwear for the next two days until somebody brought him clothes, found his ex-wife, who also didn't know what happened to them and talked and at first he was like he went to her and said do you forgive me for abandoning the kids and she was like there was no choice there you know if it doesn't help any to have another person dead and she said to him listen we have to choose life now whatever it is we have to choose life and fight for life and for two weeks they didn't know what happened to their kids they campaigned and searched and found every alley they could until after two weeks, they were told that their son had died in the bomb shelter. And then in, after three and a half weeks, they were told that their daughter was kidnapped and was hostage in Gaza. Baruch Hashem, she was freed on November 29th. And she's back. She's Now they live in Tel Aviv. She said she doesn't want to ever move back to the kibbutz. When she was freed, Ilya went on the helicopter to go meet her and bring her back and said, just gave her a hug. The first question she asked is, what happened to Lior, her brother? And he had to tell her. And then for the first time, he just cried and cried. Everything came out nonstop for the next two days. Baruch Hashem, she's actually surprisingly doing really well. She doesn't want to move back to the kibbutz at all. Most of the kibbutz are right now in a hotel by Yam HaMelech. They're in Tel Aviv in an apartment she actually, she's going to school in Tel Aviv. She made friends. She even, he was very happy to say that yesterday she walked by herself to a friend's house and had a sleepover at her friend's house. 
So Baruch Hashem, she's doing really well. Wow. Yeah, and then after, you know, Ilya walked us through his story, we walked up to where the Achnasal Sefer Torah was starting. And they made this giant, you know, those beautiful Sephardi Torah cases? They're like the big silver Torah case. That's like a solid case. Inside, they engraved the names of everybody in the kibbutz who was killed on Simchas Torah, including Lior, his son. Ilya had never seen a Nasasevra Torah before, but my husband, you know, explained to him the significance and how all the letters each represent another Jewish soul, and that he can go write a letter in the Torah for his son, for Lior. So Ilya went and sat with the Sefer and in memory of his son, Lior, wrote a letter in the Sefer Torah. That was, that's what I just came home from. And on the way there, my husband makes fun of me because every time we're in the car, I take a selfie. I don't do anything with it. I just sitting in the car, I take a selfie. I took a selfie on the way there and then on the way back. And I looked at it and you don't even notice, you don't realize how much it affects you, not just emotionally, but physically. My eyes, yeah we're just like you could see it there's like a sadness that all of a sudden just comes and takes over and yeah I mean seeing even how my own face changed just by walking through that with him the people that we had just been with were incredible heroes people who went through something that we shouldn't it shouldn't exist and then heroes like Menachem Kalmanson who had risked his own life and had to Again, every time they rescued someone and took them to the outside of the kibbutz, they had to think again and had to decide again to go back into the fire to rescue more people. And they made that choice over and over again to risk their own lives, yeah, to just keep going and getting more people. And when you're around heroes like that, it just it's so humbling. And it's like, what am I doing? This person, when I was in my home dancing hakafis around the table, he was dodging bullets to rescue people from their bomb shelters, people who he didn't know. Yeah. People who just a day earlier would probably be considered major political enemies. But now they're one of the, when they went to the bomb shelters, Elchan and Menachem, to rescue people, at first people were too scared to open the door at the bomb shelter because, you know, the terrorists had also come and spoken to them in Hebrew to try to convince them to open the doors. So they tried, you know, singing them Simchas Torah songs to convince them. We're Jewish. We know it's Simchas Torah. We're singing Simchas Torah songs. But they were still hesitant until they would say Shema Yisrael. And it was that tefillah of Shema Yisrael that united, that opened the door and united them. Through this big darkness, everyone in Israel came to realize that all those ridiculous fights we were having before Simchas Torah was really just so external and so shallow when inside you know the Shema Yisrael were all we're all the same soul we were all attacked the same on Simchas Torah day regardless of our political spiritual beliefs or anything that incredible unity that came from it that Achnas Sefer Torah today really shows that yeah the enemy saw what we couldn't see before I think you said the heroes humble you and ask you how you can help And that's definitely the overwhelming feeling that I get hearing about these heroes. And before we talk about how we can help 
as in people who are not in Israel listening to this, listening to your story, living in Beersheba, knowing people personally who had been dodging bullets on Simchas Torah, you yourself experiencing it just literally minutes away. Tell us how you have been helping. I know that you have... You said you're a helper because you're a chassid and a chassid is a helper. You see darkness and you say, how can I increase in light? And it's interesting that the last time we spoke, way before Simchas Torah, before October 7th, you spoke about not turning away from the darkness and letting yourself cry because when you allow yourself to feel it, it becomes motivation to increase in light. And you are living that in the purest way possible where you have so much empathy and are very much feeling what is going on. And you are also showing up fully continuously day after day to increase in light and to combat the ugly darkness. So tell us a little bit about how you've been helping and tell us what you've been up to. You know, it's, it's really, after talking about such big heroes, it feels silly to talk about, you know, what I'm doing in the beginning, you know, it started as just being a voice since I write. So after Simple Star, my first thought of how can I help was I need to write about what's going on. And then through that, there were different people who needed help. And I realized that I can write about what they're doing in order to get them help donations that they needed. So there was, you know, Chabad of Ofakim has a soup kitchen where Ofakim had a horrific massacre over there. And it was a poor city to begin with. And they really just were struggling to keep people fed and for a week, two weeks, people were afraid to leave their bomb shelters. And even for the next six weeks, the streets were empty because people were afraid to leave their homes after what they had been through. So the shliach over there had turned his soup kitchen from where it used to feed 100 people a day to feeding 1,000 people a day. And when I asked him how he plans on paying for the, like, you know, how he's managing, he's like, we have to do what we have to do. When it all calms down, I'll figure out how to pay the bills. <laughs> First thing was to write about those amazing people who needed help to be able to do what they were doing. Wow. Chabad of Eilat had first 100,000 soldiers at reserve placed over there for training that all needed a lot of, they'd all, you know, picked up the moment they heard what was going, didn't have time to pack and just showed up and now they needed stuff. And who do you turn to? Well, Chabad. And then 70,000 displaced people, mostly from the Gaza envelope and a lot also from the north, from like Kiryat Shmona we're all of a sudden in Eilat, and Eilat's a tiny, tiny city of 50,000 people, not a well-off city, and now they had 70,000 traumatized, displaced people to take care of, and the Shluchim really stepped up there, so we went to help out as much as we could, and also help with getting their story out, and help with getting donations. And then, really long story, but I think it's really just, Hashem coordinates it all. You know, we were helping different IDF units here and there, soldiers would call and they needed some kind of equipment or we were going to bases bringing tzitzis to all the soldiers who were asking, mostly, you know, just helping in a scattered way with the soldiers until we met this chamal. I know that chamal is a completely foreign concept to Americans or anybody that's not Israeli because in most countries you have the army completely separate from civilians. In Israel, it's not like that because most people have been in the army or have a kid in the army, or a parent, somebody in the army. So when war starts, everybody you know, wants to do what they can to help. So people set up a chamal, which stands for cheder milchama, or war room. And some war rooms are civilian war rooms, where they helped 
with civilian needs, like displaced families, getting them clothing. In the beginning, that was a big thing, getting clothing for all the people who had fled with nothing. Food, diapers, you know, all the basics. And there's some chamals that help IDF units. So often it'll be like people set up a chamal and they will like adopt their child's unit or a neighborhood will get together and adopt two or three units and help them get what they need or adopt a specific cause. Like some chamals will focus on armored vests or helmets or whatever. So long story, actually through Chabad of Eilat, we connected with this chamal that was engineers and startup executives. And they were connected with commanders of the Southern Brigade and Northern Gaza Brigade and also with the Yahalom unit, which are in charge of dealing with the tunnels. And they basically would present to them different challenges that they were facing. And the Hamal, the engineers would sit together and come up with creative, low-cost, effective solutions. So when we met them, they had just come up with a solution for one big issue, which was that in this war, all of a sudden the idea of had to deploy a lot of tanks, APCs, and bulldozers, not just the newest ones, but also some that were like not so new and therefore don't have 360 vision. In other words, I can't see all the way around from my camera. And you would have to, you know, slowly turn around the tank's top in order to see all the way around. Hamas terrorists had figured out, they even had textbooks showing this, how to run up from the blind spot of the tank, have a bomb attached to a magnet and attach it to the weak spot of the tank and then run and it would explode and in that way injured or got forbid, killed many soldiers. Wow. So these guys came up with a very simple solution, which was get these home surveillance kits, four cameras, ones with night vision, and they rigged it up, adapted it a little bit in order to attach it to the tanks. So now they had cameras all the way around the tanks and a screen inside where they could see completely what was going on all around, also in the bulldozers. And every vehicle that got it, instantly they would get messages from them saying, wow, you saved us. Wow. We saw from on the screen a terrorist running up with a bomb to our tank, and we wouldn't have seen him otherwise, and we're able to right in time turn around and eliminate him and save everyone in the tank. And so they realized how important this was. They were... The Hamal was Israeli, and they had fundraised from within Israel a million shekel. Oh my gosh! But they had already completely depleted funds on all the other, you know, all the many projects they were doing, and they needed help reaching outside of Israel in order to, you know, there's 700 vehicles that needed these camera systems between the tanks, APCs, and bulldozers. So I jumped in to help out with that, and Baruch Hashem. So first we launched we launched a campaign, and we brought in private donors, and we managed to cover enough for every single vehicle, north and south of Israel. And it significantly dropped casualties with this specific issue, which is absolutely amazing. There's the rewarding feeling when you get a text from a soldier saying, we wouldn't be alive if not for the camera system that you installed. I mean, I feel so blessed that I can be part of that. Unbelievable. I think the really amazing thing about it isn't, it's not just the Hamal, and it's not just the effect of it. It's the fact that when we wrote that this was a need and that this was happening, Jewish people all around the world stepped up, and we launched a campaign for it. And the fact that we were able to cover, it ended up being $300,000 within three days from crowdfunding. Oh, my God. The Jewish people are beautiful. 
And that's that's something I've been seeing consistently yeah. again and again through this is just our people are beautiful. And every day we meet these soldiers and these heroes and that have been through the worst, seen the worst. And they're these humble, kind, caring, beautiful souls. And then when they need something, then, you know, we just write about it and Jewish people around the world care so much and step up to help them with however they need. Just being able to see that, it's just really, I think last, was it last week? I guess last week, the end of last week, we got invited to a ceremony, a very small ceremony for a really special unit. It was the commander of the Northern Gaza Brigade. I always mix up the Northern and Southern ones. I think it's the Northern one. So he's a colonel. He had invited us to this ceremony. Basically, on Simchas Torah, there's three different outposts along the Gaza border. There's Nacha Oz, Ra'im, and Kerem Shalom. And the terrorists came with a very thought-out plan. They went straight to each outpost to attack and take down all the surveillance systems. The soldiers that sit on, these are intelligence soldiers that sit at computers. They're not combat soldiers. So you have these non-combat soldiers that all of a sudden ended up being on the front lines. So in Re'im, that base over there, I mean, it's crazy. We saw this commander showed us his window. He's the colonel, the head of the whole northern or southern brigade. I'm sorry, I'm mixing it up. They knew exactly which window was to his bedroom. Terrace came 6.30 a.m., walked into the base directly, beeline to his window, and shot an RPG at his window. That was the first thing they did. Baruch Hashem, they missed, and there's a big hole right on top of his window. But they didn't hit him? They didn't hit him. They fired intensely into his room. Oh, my God. He was unhurt. But what happened was the soldiers around him, who were intelligence officers who sit at computers all day, calling in, you know, watching surveillance or calling in airstrikes, and... Simple soldiers at their job is driving stuff around. And all they had done is basic training. There's different levels of sharpshooting, like gun. And these were like, in order to be a combat soldier, I think you have to be four. And these guys were level one or two. They were not combat soldiers. They were woken up in their pajamas and all of a sudden had to be the front line of defense. So that feeling of helplessness, they felt like totally unprepared and helpless. That base actually happened to have a lower amount of casualties and kept their surveillance room wasn't burnt down, unlike the one in Nahalaz. There were a few casualties, but they ended up with this very intense PTSD from that feeling of being woken up in their pajamas and being helpless, being, I'm only a simple driver, or I just sit at a computer, how am I supposed to fight off these terrorists and also protect this colonel who his bedroom was just fired at? It's terrifying, of course, right? Yeah, so the... Army came up with a new idea, which was to treat their PTSD, give them proper combat training. So for the past two months, the soldiers went through the full proper combat training. And now they're going to go guard the kibbutzim that are on the Gaza border, like um, Kfar Aza, Nahoz, Beri. So we donated to them. The colonel asked, he wanted them to get the proper, the best gear, the best helmets, the best armored vests so that they would feel ready and confident and in that way overcome the PTSD, but also feel you know confident enough for their new job standing on the border. And they had a ceremony. That's what we were invited to that day. And 
seeing you have this colonel who's at least he has three commanders under him before these soldiers. But at the ceremony, these are 70 soldiers lined up getting their pin. Every single one of them, he patted them, had a small word on them, like it literally looked like a father proud of his son. And the way he spoke about them, he was so proud of them. Like he was beaming, just talking about them and then talking to them. And it's like, here we are in what's, you know, known as one of the strongest armies in the world at war. And these are supposed to be big, tough soldiers. This guy's a colonel. And he just, you know, did combat training for the, and he was just this softy with so much love for each of his soldiers and like having a patient word with each of them, giving them each a pat and a hug. It was just so beautiful. The beauty of our people that even at war that, it's really all about each other. It's really all about the people, about the love. There was one commander with him. I nicknamed him Natan because I'm not allowed to say his name. He's really funny. He's a commander of a few intense combat units, commando units, some rescue, some commando. Whenever we have people around, we joke and like have them ask him what he does because he just comes up with a ridiculous answer every time. Like Sometimes he'll say he's a driver. Sometimes he says he sets up meetings, and if you press him, like, what meetings are you setting up? He's like, between terrorists and God. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> I mean, he's supposed to be this intense guy who's, like, in intense combat all day. He came to this ceremony, even though he works at night. This was in the day. He was supposed to be sleeping. But he wanted to come to this ceremony because he was also so proud of these soldiers. And he says to me and my husband, we were with the people of the Hamal. This wasn't by ourselves. It was with the others from the Hamal. He said to us, listen, you guys, you bought amazing stuff for our unit. And, you know, there's more stuff that we need. And I really appreciate it. But the best thing you guys have done, the best thing that you can do is help these soldiers, because this is what it's all about. This is what we are all about as a nation, is lifting up those that are struggled the most. People would normally look down. In Israel, there's a little bit of, I don't know what to describe it, but people that are in high combat or in high ranks are looked up as higher, while people that are, you know, they're just drivers, they only do the lowest basic training, are sometimes looked down on. But he's like, this is what it's all about, that we have the highest respect for our lowest soldiers. And when they have a trauma, we do what it, they need to lift them up and to bring them up to the front of our people. You know, you don't need to buy me anything more. Just take care of these guys. This is what it's all about. It's just so beautiful. That is such a sensitive, beautiful story to want to lift them up and help them heal while defending the Jewish people, but not forgetting about these soldiers who experienced the most horrific, unimaginable thing, and to be unprepared and not to be equipped for what they were being asked to do, and just literally in their pajamas in the middle of the night. I'm amazed at how you have shifted and just taken every opportunity that has come your way to help because you could have easily said, I'm a writer, I'm helping people. You're also writing the daily news for people so that they can consume it in a healthier way. You're helping fundraise for the shluchim, for this soup kitchen, for all these different places. You could have easily said, I don't think I need to get involved in fundraising for the best helmets for this unit, but you did it. And I I'm just really amazed by how it's like whatever has come your way, even if you could have easily, easily dismissed it saying they're going to get funded some other way, like someone who is better, more connected, who has a bigger following or whatever it is, they'll help them. You were like, no, I'm going to take the voice that I have, the people that I have connections with, and I'm going to make something happen. And you did 300 K in three days, saving soldiers lives every single day. The gear, it's incredible. Honestly, I just feel so lucky that I get to do it. I just feel so lucky that I get to do it. And I know that it's not 
it's not me. It's only because, again, because the Jewish people are so amazing that when we put out that call, people answer to it. When people hear that there's another way to help. Like every time I post a link, like, please donate to this. Sometimes I feel like a little, maybe I shouldn't be asking so much. And then people message me saying, thank you so much for telling us how to help and where to donate to. I love that. It's beautiful. That's what I wanted to ask you, which is everyone wants to help so badly. And I know because I'm living in the US and there's this very difficult duality, which is like, you want to help. You know that it's still going on. Like you said, October 7th was yesterday for everyone living in Israel. It's still very much the reality. There's still very, very much a war, soldiers being lost every day, a lot of threats to the security of the Jewish people. And we want to help, but how can we help? So I would love if you could share as someone who is literally on the front lines of helping in touch with so many different types of people, how can we help as the Jewish family living in the United States, both practically with our money and other ways too, that we can help for those who can't give financially? That's a good question. So first of all, I'll say straight out that unit that I just talked about that did that PTSD retraining. We have another one with 70 more soldiers that I now need to get helmets for them. Okay. And I'm going to launch a campaign soon for it. And I really hope everybody will want to help again with that. We'll post the link. After seeing how well it worked for those soldiers, this colonel wants to do it again for more. Financially, that would be amazing to help with. <laughs> There's also, you know, donate to Chabad of Opakim, Chabad of Eilat, Derot. They're all doing really important work. Also Hebron, Ashkelon. There's so many. There's so many shluchim doing amazing work. This commander that I told you about. We're going to post some links. For anyone who's listening, check the show notes for the links. Thank you. The same commander that I was telling you about that I nicknamed Natan, because I can't say his name, who arranges meetings. So at the beginning... It's a good name. <laughs> okay. At the beginning of the war, I think it was not so beginning, four weeks in, six weeks in maybe, he was telling me how, he told us how he's not religious. The last time he put on tefillin was his bar mitzvah. He doesn't daven on Yom Kippur. Like he never, he doesn't go to shul on Yom Kippur. But since the war started, he said every time before they go on a mission, him and his soldiers say tefillah sederach. He said, it started praying and he started believing. And he said to me, please keep praying for us because we feel how it's working. We see how it's working. And honestly, every time we see him, he says it again. He says, like, you don't understand. It doesn't make sense. The numbers, each death is horrible and it's very painful. And, you know, we really feel it. And his unit in particular, because part of their job is actually evacuating bodies from the most dangerous situations. But he said, seeing what he sees inside Gaza and they go into the most intense places, it doesn't make sense that so few soldiers fell. He said, in a normal situation, it would be so much more. They see miracles right and left. And he says that with full confidence, he knows it's because the Jewish people are praying for them and doing mitzvot for them. And he really stresses the unity. He says, and he says, all the soldiers there know it, that like all that fighting of the past has to be gone. As long as we have unity, Hashem is with us and we do well. So he, he always says, he, by the way, at least from one of his units, four soldiers committed to putting on tefillin every day. I went and brought them a new pair of tefillin to start putting on. When they say they start praying every day, they, they really mean it. They really did. Wow. Because they're seeing it up close. They're seeing, yeah, I don't want to brush over it because they also, I can literally see in their eyes the pain that they see every day. 
it's it's visible on their eyes and sometimes they joke about it like in the day we have fun barbecues and at night we cry in our pillows like they joke about it but you see it in their eyes but also they also talk about seeing Hashem seeing God helping them and please keep praying for them and please keep having unity and come together as a Jewish nation because that's what we need and that's what helps that's something really important that everyone everyone can do wherever we are is first of all to just go out to people that you wouldn't normally reach out to talk to people you would normally reach out to and then also and it's inevitable that it's going to happen that there's always going to be the people who try to bring arguments back up especially you know the news the media is going to try to bring arguments back up and Natan says please don't give them attention please ignore them please don't let us go back to that fighting and that you guys are bad no you guys are bad we're one nation and we saw that on Simchas Torah we saw that we're all ultimately the same soul and the soldiers fighting in Gaza side by side from different backgrounds that are under fire together and really build a strong love for each other even though they're from completely different backgrounds they see that every day that we're really really one people and we need to remember that not just when we're at war but also when the war is over just another thing is sorry there's a bit of a lag which you're which is why I say something and then I think you hear it when you're ready in a in middle of a sentence so fun fact our internet is terrible since the war started out oh really because there's certain airplanes that fly I mentioned that we're right next to an air force base okay so there are some airplanes that their job is I forget the word but breaking up signals so in order to block like any guided missiles or things like that they're rigging your signal. yes <laughs> so actually in the beginning like the first week the first week, my husband was convinced that our car key, you know, the button thing to unlock the car was broken, like the battery. He, he changed oh, the battery okay. multiple times because you'd go, you know, click it and the car wouldn't unlock unless he was right next to the car. And then we realized that everybody was having the same problem. And it wasn't that the battery, which he had changed twice, was probably <laughs> the airplanes blocking the signals. So to unlock the car when they're overhead. So now there's, it's a lot less. But in the beginning of the war, it was like, you want to unlock your car? You got to walk right up to it. If you have an electric gate, you have to get out of your car, go press the button because these things don't work. Yeah. So for internet, if I need strong internet, I have to sit right next to my router. It just doesn't work. Little effects of war that you don't think of. Yeah. Literally. It's everywhere. There's. It's everywhere. So my internet's terrible. <laughs> okay. So we're feeling it a little bit today. And that's why I was apologizing. We're feeling it. Yeah, we're feeling it. As you were saying, go on. Yeah, as I was saying was that I mentioned before that like for us, it's still October. It's still October 7th. It's still Simchas Torah here in Israel. And I know that from far away, you know, it's harder to feel that because you're not hearing the jets overhead. You're not hearing the Israeli news, the people, relatives, people, friends, coworkers affected. Here, most people have somebody that's fighting in Gaza. But knowing that the Jewish people around the world are with us and support us is huge. It's a big deal. It's knowing that we're not alone when it looks like we're alone. From the media, from the way governments around the world and protests are going on, it very much feels like we're alone. But when we know that at least all the Jewish people around the world are with us here in Israel, it makes a huge difference. So keeping in the loop, and it doesn't mean being addicted to the news because that's not healthy either. But maybe even once a day, just check in on how are your family in Israel doing? Keep updated about the situation. And remember that for those of us in Israel, we haven't moved on yet. We're still, it's still going on. The war is still right now. We're still under the big what if that it's actually going to explode and get much bigger right now from Lebanon going full force. 
So it's actually not even just that it's not over, but as people feel like it hasn't even necessarily began all the way yet. That's really the feeling here. Yeah. So keeping up with that and keeping educated and educating people in your close circles about what is really happening here, that this is not a genocide that Israel's doing, it's genocide that Hamas is doing. And that's being very confident in the fact that this is the land of the Jewish people. Eretz Israel is our home, it's our land, it's your home as a Jewish person, this is your home. You know, we're not the colonialists, that's the Arabs that actually are. <laughs> being confident in that and remembering that is really important. There's a lot of misinformation on the internet and a lot of people who don't know much who position themselves as experts. So for anyone who is listening, who is in an environment where they feel confused about Israel and what's going on because of your environment, it could be helpful to get educated about the history of Israel, of Eretz Israel and your connection to it as a Jewish person so that you could have that strength. Cause you're mentioning having that strength and that confidence, but when you don't know or when it could be very easy right now to misunderstand what's going on, it is so much more complicated than people understand and also so much simpler too, I think. Broria, yeah, you mentioned unity and I want to press there a little bit because I know how much people want to help. Like you said, people want to help. They want to participate. And you, when you spoke at the beginning about the heroes really stepping up at this time. I know that every Jewish person wants to step up at this time and want to help. So when you say unity, give us some tangible ideas. What does it look like for us to actively invest in the Jewish people's unity right now? That is a really good question. I think that if we look from what was happening in Israel right before the war started, most of the disunity was based on politics, which is at the outset, it's just different opinions of what is the best solution for the same problem that we're both trying to solve the same problem. Right and left in Israel, ultimately, we both want the same thing, which is a safe place for the Jewish people. Although we'll have different ideas about it, different beliefs about it, our goal is the same. We both love each other the same. So it was something that took up so much of the media, so much of the news, so much of our lives when it was really so external. And I think that a lot of times we get in arguments with people and we think that it's the person as they are that we're upset at or disagreeing with, where it's really just a problem that we both have different opinions of how to solve, but at the root, we both want the same good positive outcome from it. So I think a lot of times we'll come across another Jew, another person who we have a strong disagreement with and might think that think of them as the other or the enemy or somebody, that person who I don't go to or the shul that I don't go to. Take a moment to stop and realize that it's not the person you dislike. You actually probably both want the same outcome. You both want a good thing. And just the paths that you think to get there might be different. It is possible to put that aside, not bring that to the forefront of every conversation and get to the root of it, which is the love and care for each other. I would say that if there's a person in your life that you don't really agree with, don't really get along with, try to see past that. Try to look at them for their soul that's inside, which is ultimately the same soul as yours. It's good. I like that. I think that we can all use that right now as a very practical way of bringing that unity into our lives. You don't necessarily have to gather. You don't necessarily have to do things that might be impossible for you, but just reaching out to one person that you disagree with and 
getting past the distraction of disunity and seeing the inherent unity. I really like that as a very practical way to bring Jewish unity into our lives. So thanks for that suggestion. And I want to end off by asking you what's keeping you strong right now. What's giving you hope? How are you staying strong through a time when you are experiencing unimaginable stress? And I know that you're very much in the thick of it, but what is carrying you and keeping you somewhat upright as you are a helper of the Jewish people? On some days, honestly, it's too much. Today, I noticed after visiting Kibbutz Berry, I noticed that my eyes were visibly pained. I wasn't just feeling it on the inside. I saw myself in my phone's camera that the pain was not just too much inside. It was already becoming too much all the way through and through. And some days it really, really is too much. There are things that it's always inspiring seeing how Again, how the Jewish people step up, seeing the beauty of our people, seeing how our soldiers are such amazing people. Honestly, I'm going to the Ohel next week, a few days, because it's a lot. It's really painful, and I feel like I need to go to the Rebbe and have a good cry. Some days it is too much, and I think it's okay to admit that, that some days it's really, you know, I just want to hide under my blanket in my bed and not face reality at all. Earlier this week, I'm losing track of time, but I remember earlier this week, Natan, we had a meeting scheduled with some high command about a project that needs to be done. And last minute it was canceled. And they told us it was because a building had exploded and many soldiers were most likely killed. And then later in the night, they updated us that 21 soldiers. And I remember just not feeling anything. When I heard that news, I was just day after day hearing so much difficult news and then hearing something so horrific all at once. I couldn't. I wasn't able to feel it. It's like I had like a, a block up or like or becoming numb. Exactly the biggest thing that I was most afraid of was becoming numb to the pain. And I started to worry that, that that's what was happening. I just heard that 21 soldiers were killed. And my first instinct was denial. Like, they're probably wrong. They're going to they're gonna find them. They're going to be okay. I'm not hearing right. I just couldn't face that. Later, I mean, I, I took a moment to feel because I think that's important. I took a moment to feel. I actually listened to, do you know that beautiful recording of Yehuda Bachar? Yeah. He was killed in the Nova Festival. So shortly before that, there's a video of him in the car. He had Actually, his brother told him he was having a bad morning, and he sent his brother a video of him singing Elokai Neshama with such purity, so pure, and smiling like he really meant it, like he was really so grateful for every single day with his Neshama. I actually watched that on repeat a few times, and it really, I don't know, helped me feel again. I feel strange to say that I was trying to cry, but I felt like emotionally clogged and numb and I felt like this is not good that my first instinct is denial to not want to believe that this is happening because it's becoming too much because this commander that I was about to you know sit in a meeting with about a project that was supposed to save lives was all of a sudden called away to rescue dozens of soldiers from under a collapsed building and that's something we should cry about and should feel about it should hurt but then after the hurt is the pickup and okay we have to do something. We have to do some light to make up for this big darkness. Thank you. So hopefully my trip to the hall next week. I haven't been to New York. I haven't left Israel in a really long time. I haven't been to America, to New York in eight years. So it's going to be my first time at the hall in eight years. Eight years. So, yeah, I don't like leaving Israel. 
I love Israel. I love this land. I love the people here and I love this land and leaving is so painful that I never I find every excuse not to go. Not to go. <laughs> not to, no, if you can I'm avoid it, you here. do. Right. <laughs> but now it's like, I need to go to my Rebbe. I need to go have a conversation with my Rebbe. And I know that I could do that from here, but there's something about going to the Ohel. So yeah. I'm going to go. And I really hope that that will give the strength to be able to keep helping in whatever way I can. It's your responsibility to do the things that you need to be able to stay strong because... Mm-hmm. When you're doing such divine work, like you also have to make space for taking care of yourself and making sure that you're okay. So I'm so happy that you're going to New York to give yourself that space to go to the Rebbe and talk to the Rebbe because we need Breria. Like you are, you are a voice for so many people right now. We need strong Breria. We need you to be able to fall apart and to be able to feel and to be able to cry because that is a prerequisite to being able to bring the light. So thank you so much. Thank you for your, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes for your daily news updates where you do allow us to remember and feel what is going on continuously and also to give us opportunities to give and to help. And thank you for continuously giving us opportunities to join you in helping and being there for the Jewish people. And Hashem should give you the utmost strength to be able to stand up despite all of the pain and to help the Jewish family. And all of this should be over so soon with no loss of life and everyone returned to their families and homes. Miracles. Miracles. Yes. And thank you to everyone who enables us here to do it, enables miracles and enables us to, I wouldn't be able to do all this helping if not for all the Jewish people around the world that respond every time we put out a call. So also thank you. We're a team. And thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. I know how precious your time and energy is right now, and I'm so grateful. Seriously, thank you. Thank you. Elokai zakinina betoratcha urimitzotecha lichamberet nishmati tamidilecha If you enjoyed today's episode and it sparked something for you, touched your heart or touched a raw nerve or just got you thinking, I want to invite you to keep this godly conversation going. Share the episode with a friend, tag us on social media with your follow-up thoughts. Let's get the truths of Torah into the atmosphere. The world needs it right now more than ever. You can email us at info at humanandholy.com. Find us on Instagram at humanandholy. And you can sponsor an episode or give it any amount through our site, humanandholy.com slash sponsor. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single one. And while you're at it, feel free to leave us a five-star rating. It helps other people find the podcast and it brings us joy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk next week.